Hi all, welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. In each episode, I talk to women of all sorts about life and art in the South. And if I'm feeling it, I might catch you up on my life in the intro a little. I can't say that I'm exactly feeling it today, but I feel like I needed to say something um, because it's been a couple of weeks since I taped this episode, and I don't want to apologize for it being late, per se, because it's not really late since I'm the one that decides when it comes out. But it's been a, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's been kind of a rough fall. And yeah, so I'm just going to say that it's been a, it's been a lot. It's, there's a lot going on and I'm really feeling all of this. No, I'm not. I'm the opposite of that. I'm not feeling all of this super gray weather that we're having. Um, I think I'm just kind of getting down because I haven't seen the sun in so long. And you know, I'm a skeptic and I don't really believe in, uh, astrology, but as a helpful frame of reference for you guys that, that do, I'm a triple fire sign. So I'm going to say I'm like a summer person. Um, I like to have a lot of daylight and really don't we, don't we all like to have a lot of daylight? Um, yeah. So anyway, but I'm going to give myself a break and just proudly present you this episode. Yay for me for finally getting it together. And it's actually a pretty awesome little chat with artist Colleen Merrill. So I'm going to give that to you guys without any more qualifications or apologies. Okay. So this episode and the last were both taped at the 2019 annual CCAT conference in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So if you haven't listened to the last Peachy Keen episode with Naomi Falk, you can check that out for a detailed description of what CCAC is, but basically it's a conference for artists and art educators to come together for a few days every year and talk about their work and research. By the time I met up with Colleen Merrill, our guest today on the podcast, it was day three of the conference and she had just presented Mirroring, Affirming the Self as Parent, Artist, and Academic as part of the Artist as Parent as Academic two-part panel that had been going on from 8 a.m. to noon that morning. That panel was put together by Kaylin Butine of Artist Mother Podcast. Y'all have heard me mention her before as I was on her podcast over the summer in Nashville, and Lauren Francis Evans of Artist Parent Academic. They did a taping and Q&A at the end of the session. Yes, I know, it's a lot of name dropping going on here. That's why you should be sure and listen all the way through to the end of this episode. I'll give you more information on how to find links to all the stuff that I'm talking about here, as well as more information on the topics that we discuss later on in the episode. Colleen and I met up at 1.15, fresh out of her presentation and taping for Artist Mother Podcast, so we were both feeling the excitement and also the exhaustion of the conference at that point. Colleen is an artist. She works with fiber a lot, and she's a parent and an academic, as you may have already guessed, and she's based in Lexington, Kentucky. I think she's the first Kentucky artist we've had on the podcast, so way to rep your state, Colleen. Even though we were both tired when we met up, uh, we both, I think, and I'm going to take the liberty to speak for Colleen here, left our conversation feeling pretty invigorated. So I'm going to see if I can cheer myself out of my current little December slump and maybe even cheer you guys up as well if you're having your own gray and not in a good way December by putting this little piece of exuberance out into the world. I think it's what we all need right now to get us a little bit peppier. So here it is, artist Colleen Merrill, talking with me about her life, art, and teaching practice during CCAC 2019. Check it out. So that, um, that live panel is, I imagine, very nerve-wracking, because I don't know how much they edited it out, yeah, I don't think she edits much out at all. I think she'll edit out the crowd questions yeah. that she gave. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's really, especially when you're doing a panel like that. So I actually um, was on a artist mother panel podcast. I listened to oh, okay. it, or to most of it. I might have gotten interrupted. 
but yeah, I wanted to listen to it to kind of get a feel for what that would be like. Yeah, and you were, and it was like accompanied from an exhibition. It was right? Jody Hayes um, had an exhibition yeah. at Red Arrow Gallery, and so we were all sitting around. It was it was about I guess she kind of declined to want to do an artist talk. Got it. And so this was like good for her. Yeah, <laughs> I can totally respect that. <laughs> so this is in place of her doing an artist talk. She had this panel, which I really appreciated. I that was a great idea. And like, I got to go hang out in Nashville. Nice. So that so, was awesome. So where do you live? Athens, Georgia. Athens, Georgia. Okay. I knew that. I just forgot. Okay. And I'm a Tennessee native, so I'm originally from Memphis, but okay. I haven't lived here since I was a kid, but I don't know. Somehow I feel very connected to the Tennessee art community. I guess, yeah. you know, something, uh, you know, wait, where are you from? You're from Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. You know, so all the, I see the connect. I, see I started that. talking to Naomi yesterday a little bit about, cause she's not from the South and I knew immediately that she was not by her accent. Yeah. <laughs> so, she's from up North somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. So cause she works it in the South, but yeah, yeah. but she's, kind of a, a she's definitely a transplant at least she lived here a little bit during yeah. her childhood but I don't know I have a I feel like I've tried to train my accent out of me yeah but still I can tell other people who are also like southern by birth mm-hmm. even if they don't have a really hardcore accent it anymore comes out, right? it comes out and I'm from Cincinnati and so I think I don't have it as much like I'll, it'll come out I'll say y'all and be like what where did that come from but my daughter she's got a little twang oh she's, she was born in Kentucky oh my gosh yeah so my son so me and my husband are both my husband's from Georgia um he was born in Atlanta and I'm from Memphis so we're both from southern cities um and my son in Athens has got a oh, crazy bet. accent like he Athens is a really distinct accent I feel like or anyone I know from like that area I feel like yeah it's a good and I know like if it's like Kentucky where I live and the city you don't really hear it but if you drive like 15 minutes yes from the big city that's where you see you hear that really much more stronger sort so of he asked us thing. for a drink the other yeah, day uh-huh. oh yeah <laughs> mom can I have a drink mm-hmm. I was like a drink would you like a, dr- a drink <laughs> oh I love that so much I know I kind of love it I'm like okay with her having it I'm like that makes you special there's something it does. special about the south for it's sure. I kind of I wished I hadn't have trained myself out of mine yeah I will say that yeah so you you're from like how long did you live in Cincinnati you, you were born there no I was born in Chicago actually okay. but I only lived there for like a few months and then my mom moved to Cincinnati when my parents got a divorce and so I grew up with a single mom and lived there until I went to undergrad there at the University of Cincinnati okay where I got my BFA and sort of focused in sculpture and then I got and I also got certified to teach K through 12 so that was sort of my goal was to be a high school teacher okay. so I moved to Kentucky because I got a job teaching and taught high school for a year and realized it wasn't for me. So I did it for seven years. Oh, well. You, middle school and high every school. Every time I see a middle school or high school teacher, or really any <laughs> K through 12 teacher, I just like want to give them a hug because I know <laughs> yeah. how it's such hard work. And yeah. I think this, the hardest thing for me was being in the classroom in the same room every day mm. for that long hour period. No bathroom breaks. Yeah, I mean, it's just intensity, right? Yeah. Over and over again. So there were a lot of things I loved about it, but that was the one thing I think I couldn't take. So academia, like higher ed was nice in that it had a little more flexibility and more variety in the day-to-day. So you moved to Kentucky for to teach high school. Yeah. And were you teaching art? I was teaching art, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and I was teaching at an alternative school for students who had been expelled from the school district. So oh. it was a particularly like um, challenging first-year teaching experience, too, right. which I think lent itself also to why I kind of decided to leave. Um, so I only did that for a year, and then I went to the University of Kentucky to get my MFA. So the, that experience didn't turn you off to the state of Kentucky? No. Surprisingly enough, I really fell in love with Kentucky. Really? Um, I, and I think that that all began really in graduate school, too, because I started to have this newfound interest in textiles. I had previously been working only in sculpture. Okay. And using a tiny bit of textiles in my sculptures, but mostly like metal sculpture. You know, the photographs of those works, I hope are like burned somewhere because I don't (laughs) want anyone to ever see them. Um, But then getting into Kentucky and getting into graduate school, starting to learn the sort of history of textiles 
particularly quilt making was what I was really drawn to. Um, so you took quilt making in grad school? Well, I took I my my focus in grad school was fiber arts. Okay. So I just but the quilt part really had nothing to do with me as an artist at first. I started collecting them at thrift stores, mm. um, and that's something that I think is really unique to the South is the amount of sort of discarded remnants of women's work. Do you uh, know Jess Jones and her work? I don't think so. She works with discarded quilts. She's in Atlanta. She oh. teaches at Georgia State. Check her out. Oh, I'm going to have to. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly sort of what began all of my current work was this, like, and my mother is a quilter. My grandmother is a quilter. So this is something that's sort of embedded, I think, in my mind of just sort of being really attracted to these quilts, almost looking at them like paintings mm-hmm. because they are, I mean, they are right. so beautiful. They're so painterly. But what's unique about the South is the access to these things that is basically costs nothing, you know? So I just started collecting these quilts. So you don't for, think you could get these in like an Ohio, like I don't, at a thrift store? Like? I don't think as much. Like I did a residency in New York over the summer and thought, oh, I'll go upstate New York to the vintage oh, stores. not near Brooklyn. Stores. No, no, not away. I, I was <laughs> like up in like, in. I was in Brooklyn for the residency, but I went up north to visit friends upstate and I was in like Woodstock and smaller towns, Albany, thinking that there would be some of that up there. Couldn't find any. Still, there's so many artists though, like in upstate that are like leaving the city, coming up there. I think it's really picked over. Just That's like very trying true. to go to a college town and yeah. buy stuff at a thrift store is not a good idea. Yeah, I'll give you that for sure. <laughs> um, but I think that that's what I loved about Kentucky was just the sort of environment, the really rich craft community. Because I've always really been drawn to it mm-hmm. um, and sort of attracted to it and found it to be much more comforting than maybe more of the conceptual contemporary art community. Um, so yes, and you're in Lexington. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the size of Lexington? It's actually very similar to Chattanooga, where okay. we are today. Um, I don't know the population. People always ask me that, and I'm, I'm, I never know. Um, but it's a college town. So it's centered around the University of Kentucky. I have never been there, but, you know, I live in Athens, and Kentucky and UGA are playing in at Athens this weekend. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't um, know that. So okay. part of your town is in my town this All weekend. All right, yeah. And it's a very <laughs> heavily sports town, which yeah. I have no sort of understanding of because I'm not a sports person. Um, but it has a very unique sort of – I think being a college town makes it – attractive in a certain degree because then it has certain resources that I think a lot of other southern small towns may not have just because of the fact that it's on uh there's a campus and there's lots of and uh, like galleries and I saw you had shown at 193 Mm -hmm. um I met Paul Brown who yeah he's great is there he came and visited my studio okay and he's a great steward of fiber art too he is he seems to be really have a sort of unique personal interest in textiles. I think he even made a quilt recently. Nice. Post. Yeah. Um, so I actually showed it 193 when I was still in graduate school. Okay. So I was just still very new and sort of emerging and figuring out what I wanted to do as an artist. Um, so that was a really great like formative show that kind of embedded me into the arts community there. Um, and then was really ready to leave. <laughs> was after sort, grad school? After grad school. I always had the intention to move, and my husband's a social worker, so he can move anytime. Um, it's a lot easier for him to get a job than someone who's in academia. Mm-hmm. I teach foundations, and you know, there's only one or two foundations people usually at each school. Um, so I started applying, but and ended up having a, a child and sort of getting a little bit more grounded there, and then realizing that, oh, I actually really like this place. <laughs> you know, it it's comfortable, it's easy. I live downtown. I don't drive a car all week long. I walk or bicycle take my bicycle to school where I teach, which is only about a mile away. I walk my daughter to school every day. She's in kindergarten. Um, there's just something about the pace yeah. that I, I really, as I get older, start to appreciate more. And living in Brooklyn this past summer, I was participating in a residency called Residency Unlimited. Was there for three months and always thought I would love to live in New York City and was really attracted to, of course, all of the things that were attracted to there, right? Um, Galleries, museums, all of those sort of cultural things that you're exposed to there. But realized after being there for about a month that I really love Lexington. I really miss my little town. It's interesting that you should say that. So I lived in Brooklyn for about 10 years. Okay. I went to Pratt. Okay, and, yeah. And um, 
I love Brooklyn, but I actually found it untenable after we had kids. Yeah, um, exactly. Like, there was no, it was just so exhausting to get groceries. And, but, you know, I was looking at your, uh, I, I know I, I looked at a few things. Um, tra- you didn't have your CV online, so I had to do some like. That's very purposeful. I would have been happy <laughs> to send it to you. <laughs> I, usually people do have it. I don't have mine online either. Yeah. But, um, Sometimes because I don't want people to know how old I am. Well, and there then you'd have to update it, and I'm not good about that. Oh, so, yeah, that's yeah. true. So, um, But I noticed, I don't know where I was looking, somewhere like an interview with you online, um, and you were talking about your time in New York that you visited the Museum of Art and Design, the American Folk Art Museum, and Cooper Hewitt, and it was really interesting to me because when I was in New York, I went to Pratt and painting. Mm-hmm. Now I do textiles. Um, I'm, you see, I've got my Aramont shirt on, yeah. and I went to Aramont in textiles. That was like a turning point for me. I was like, oh my God, I'm a textiles artist. Like, how did that happen? Exactly. I think that happens to a lot of us, actually. <laughs> yeah. But when I was in New York, uh, I had no knowledge of all of that. Like, these three museums that you list, I don't, I may have been to the Museum of Art and Design once. And I lived there 10 years. Like, I never went to these because they weren't, like, painting. Yeah. And that reminds me of two things. So I think I always seek out those types of museums because I do have an underlying interest in architecture and design. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, being in Brooklyn over the summer made me realize how immense textiles has become in the contemporary art scene. So I think these institutions, especially the Museum of Art and Design, have becoming more popular, more talked about, more like, oh, have you seen this exhibition? This is a really great show here. So I do think that that sort of popularity of fiber arts in general is driving more interest in those institutions. It's so crazy. Yeah. It's like the opposite of what it was when I was in school and everybody told me I wasn't allowed to, I remember I tried to use sequins in something and they were like, that's not painting. Exactly. And I think a lot of these mediums, I teach fiber as well um, at the University of Kentucky part-time. And I think material studies, this idea of experimenting with materials is becoming much more accepted in certain mediums like painting, um, in my case sculpture, that we're sort of blurring that line a little bit. But I also get pegged fiber artist all of the time and it can be frustrating because it sort of has a stereotype behind it that I don't necessarily want all that baggage you know with (laughs) yeah so when I was at Aramont um, I was there with Amelia Briggs and some other folks I don't know if you're familiar with her work yeah but we were all like a lot of us that were there did not want to be called fiber artists and we were kind of like why are we here in textiles Um, and we had like a coming out moment we were like, okay, we can. It's okay if somebody calls us a textiles artist. And then I made like a quiz uh, for the group that was like, "Are you really a fiber artist?" It was like a BuzzFeed quiz. Yeah. Because we were just so anti being called that. Yeah. I got super I offended when someone called me a fiber artist. Yeah. And I was like, "No, I'm a painter." Yep. I totally understand. And it's funny. There's even like a hierarchy between fiber and textiles. Yes. So I've noticed it's more socially acceptable to say you're a textile artist. And fiber art has more of that, I think, uh, baggage with it. Mm. Um, but I have just finally accepted, yes, I am a fiber artist, <laughs> and that's fine. And I actually find a much more welcoming and sort of safe community in the fiber art community when it comes to exhibitions, residencies. Being in New York for the summer gave me the other sort of side of things. And it wasn't necessarily a bad experience at all, but it was a different experience. It was certainly a different perspective where I really have driven my residencies and my exhibitions have been more based in textile art or craft-based, like Aeromont School of Arts and Crafts. I need your help then because I feel like my work has gone there, but my head is still in in the Pratt mode at Brooklyn yeah. of what I was trained. And I really don't know the resources yeah. for textiles and fiber. So I'm like in this in-between world. It is this like very cozy community and I think that a lot of it is word of mouth and Mm -hmm. oh so and so did this oh what a great recommendation Um, but it is similar to the same the sort of art world that is New York City in that it's a lot to navigate it's hard you know it just really has to do with like who you know and who recommends you for what so it's it's similar in those ways Um, but it just seems to be more accepting and that may just be my own experience you know I don't think that's everybody's experience I think that's from my experience also yeah and but I also really love to have a foot in both worlds mm-hmm. I prefer that I love I'm a conceptual artist right me know? too and 
I want to be able to have those conversations and I want to be embed my work in those exhibitions that are in New York too. Like, right. I mean, it's something that I really enjoy to be able to go sort of back and forth. And I do think that that line, I mean, I don't even think we should have conversations anymore about art versus craft. I think that line is blurred. I think we are getting beyond that, but I do think we still are in very segregated communities and how we support each other as artists. Whether I don't know if we're beyond that. I, I, have, I feel uh, like we are. I mean, I'm just so tired of that conversation, I guess, that yeah. I have, like, um, forced it out of my mind and, like, you know. like I'm just, just worried that we're going to, we keep, you know, coming backwards. Like, you go forward and then you go backwards and you for, forward and then you go backwards. And, like, the feminist movement has happened, like, a thousand times. Yeah. And, like, every next 10 years it's forgotten about absolutely and so I'm I don't know I'm I'm not ready to say that we're over it because well, I want to keep different. making noise I do think that that's different I am really interested in that conversation of women's work and the history of labor and how that applies to the present mm-hmm. I think that's a different conversation when I say art and craft I mean just like being called a craft craftswoman or an right. artist or whatever um, I think that the, that conversation around feminism is really important. But it's really interesting how when I was in graduate school, you did not want to be called a feminist artist. Mm-hmm. The sort of culture of that was you, that was another sort of thing. And what year was that? Just 2012. Oh, my gosh. But it's also in Kentucky. It's in Kentucky, yeah. And it was just a something that you avoided because it had a lot of baggage with it as well. And then now I fully embraced it, and I'm like, yeah, I am. Of course, I'm a feminist artist. I'm working with, you know, women's work and labor. I'm making work about being a mother. Um, what was so the gender breakdown in your graduate program? A lot of men. Um, a lot of men. In fiber and. Um, I was like the only fiber person. It was okay. a very small graduate program. I think there were only like seven of us. Okay. And it's a three-year graduate program, but at the time, a lot of the faculty were also a lot of white men. But the University of Kentucky, in just you know over 10 years, has really transformed in mm-hmm. regards to the sort of makeup of their faculty, and their graduate program has grown immensely as well. So I think that that has really changed since I was there, and that's a really short period of time. It's not like it was that long ago. Right. Um, but I feel like that the sort of conversation about feminism is becoming, a, just like fiber art is, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it, it has become kind of trendy mm-hmm. and popular. So that, that's just another sort of observation I had, especially being in New York. I was excited about it, though. I mean, I like that these things are kind of circling back in again. I have this issue with vulner- the vulnerability conversation. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I always, I have started to feel like when somebody's being vulnerable, they're selling me something. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this is a big issue that I have. Like, um, I don't want, I feel like it's been co-opted for like capitalism. Oh, wow. Oh, I kind of love that. Okay. Yeah. So vulnerable in that, like the art they make is about a vulnerable thing. Or just about like, you know, being vulnerable as, as a feminist, like mm-hmm. being out about all of your my thing is, like, I don't see a lot of men doing this. Yeah. I see mostly women, and it's advantageous, you know, if you if you put out there that you're vulnerable and you're, you're vulnerable and you're having these struggles. But I'm still really struggling with that. With being vulnerable? With being vulnerable for multiple reasons. Yeah. Uh, I think I do, too. Um, I think that's why I work with abstraction, hmm. because it allows me that sort of safe zone of, yes, my work is very personal. It's about being a mother. It's about the sort of domestic relationships in our lives and the tension that that creates. But at the same time, the work, my sort of forms, the sculptures that I create are composite in that they're suggestive of things. They're suggestive of the body, but they're abstracted enough to where they could be interpreted in different ways. And I, I'd like to leave that open space for the viewer to come into the work. I'm not a fan of overtly like political work that sort of tells you what to think or sort of says it in a more sort of radical way. I like more kind of quiet, subversive type Mm -hmm. of work. So it's still very much political because the personal is very political, but it's done in a way that it doesn't shut out the audience. Right. And it allows room for that interpretation. That to me, I think helps safeguard that vulnerability a little bit because it can get really personal. But I also can have a conversation with about my work without bringing up all my personal context as yeah, well. So totally, I'm I've been painting like nude men and 
you know, a lot I, of it's I very heard you mention that in the interview for yeah, the Mother's Mother podcast. But yeah. doing it in, in fiber and with embroidery kind of tones it down a little bit. Yeah. Where people can interact a little bit mm-hmm. more with it without just being like automatically I'm not going to look at that. Absolutely. You know, so I feel like the, you know, I'm still working in oil, but I feel like that the oil paintings are like really in your face and people can't handle them. Yeah. Textiles lend themselves to this more intimate gesture, I think. Intimate in that it's relatable. Everyone's always wanting to touch my work. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure with your embroidery, as you said, it was embroidery work, yeah. right? It's probably the same. And then it invites you in because it's something that we all live with, right? We are wearing textiles. We you know, dry off when we get out of the shower with textiles. That's something that is so embedded into our lives. So I think that it just is inviting and it's it's a little softer and a little safer for people to to deliver any sort of message or any content that you, you might have. Um, and I like how it has, but it still has this sort of subversive quality to it as well um, through the just the use of material that, but it's a more of a quiet subversive sort of approach. I don't know if that makes much sense. But it does. It makes total sense. I was interested in your pieces that have the uh, gourds underneath them. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize, I had looked at pictures of them and I hadn't realized that they were gourds until I read your description. They look like boobs. Oh, well, that's why right? I use gourds. Yeah, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you, what what was your process there? Did you see a gourd and think? Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> such a Southern thing, I feel like, to see a gourd hanging on someone's porch with a hole in it for it to be a bird feeder. Or in Lexington, there's this like trend of like painted birdhouse gourd situation. Yeah. And I had one on my porch that someone had given me. And I remember looking at it one day, and I was actually pregnant with my daughter, and I was just thinking about the body. I have never been so aware of my own body than when I was pregnant and the changes that were happening in my body. And was looking at the cord thinking, gosh, that is so phallic. Or, oh, wow, that is so suggestive of a woman's belly. And started to look into different cultural contexts of gourds and found out that actually, you know, a lot of different communities use gourds to represent fertility, to represent sexuality, and was really intrigued by that and said, you know, what a great form to work with as an armature. So I think, you know, the first piece I made out of that was very much suggestive of two breasts, and I started that literally right after my daughter was born I was nursing and thinking so much about interdependency and sort of loss of control of your body and that started this series that I call fawn which is sort of referring to one who is unweaned or still retaining a distinctive baby coat and it was really work that channeled all of the sort of changes that I was going through as a mother or a very new mother um, and thinking about I've always really been interested in interdependent relationships and sort of the psychology behind relationships but this was so much more abrupt and so different right to have a child Um, and then it just grew from there and then I started to really play around with this idea of I was really interested in composite forms and um, I don't know if you've heard of the term zoophytes but Mm -hmm. it's these old medieval drawings that are plants that look like animals and animals that look like plants. So these these sort of composite forms where you can't necessarily identify what they are. Like you could tell that they're alive and they're some sort of creature. Um, and I loved that idea of how ambiguous it could be to make something that's suggestive of the body, but also could look, look like a plant or an animal, right. some sort of growth, some sort of interacting different sort of components of the sculptures interact with each other. You can't necessarily tell like who is dependent on who. There's a lot of sort of gray area. And that to me became this really great analogy to what it was to be in this new family unit. You know, having a child changed my relationship with my partner. And then how did, how that then influenced our relationship with our daughter. It just was a whole lot of navigating. And that work really helped to process what was really going on. So this piece uh, the that I was thinking of, I think that you sh- just showed in your um, talk that you gave here at CCAC, there's two gourds, and then are they covered in found textiles and then embroidered? Is that the process? Yeah, so before this series, I had always been still, I had been repurposing textiles, mo- mainly quilts, Right. and was really, my whole 
graduate thesis was on sort of the history of quilt making and women's work. And I really needed a break from that and started to seek out something that was more in a neutral color palette, just needed like a, a formal kind of break. And that was actually made out of a tablecloth. Okay. Um, and found linens that I had. I've always had this impulse to collect textiles. Um, and then it was one of the first pieces where I did a lot of more sort of tactile, textural embroidery onto the piece as well. So that was sort of new. I had done embroidery work in the past, but not in that way. So that was really new for me. So you do, you make the form, um, I'm trying to imagine like how you do this because there's embroidery on it, but it fits the um, gourd really well. So how do you do that embroidery? Do you like have the things stitched? Is it like a stocking that you can pull over the gourd when you're finished? Or Yes, yeah, so I almost piece the fabric that goes over the gourd like a pattern, like mm-hmm. even like dressmaking, okay. where I kind of have to figure out, okay, I need to cut out this piece to fit that, and then I hand stitch it onto the gourd. Okay. And so that almost gives it like a skin. Mm-hmm. And then and the, under that skin, I put batting, like quilt batting. So it's layered like a quilt. Mm. And that allows me just enough room to be able to embroider directly onto the object. Sometimes I'll border ahead of time and then adhere the fabric to the piece. But most of the time, I, I work really intuitively. I'm not a good planner. I have never been. I don't keep, my sketchbook is all writing. Mm-hmm. There's no drawings yeah. um, because that's just not the way I work. So it's really nice to be able to just pick up the piece and start embroidering on it. And it was also a, a logistical thing because I was a new mom. I wasn't having as much time in the studio. Having these sort of smaller objects that I could grab and sit in my lap and embroider while I'm doing other things, whatever, it was just so much more easier to do it that way. So that's also kind of out of necessity. So where's your studio um, now and at this point? Have you had the same studio for a long time? I've had the same studio, and it's actually attached to my living room. Okay. And it's funny, I have this studio, which is really great, and I'm so appreciative of having the extra space in my home. I end up working on the couch. Yeah. Almost always. Yeah. (laughs) Um, they were talking about in the CCAC session, I think it was Felix Gonzalez Torres yeah. who said he's a dining room table artist. Yes. That is so me. Um, <laughs> I can have a designated studio space, but I end up working in my living space most of the time because I just, I'm more comfortable there, I think. But that's the great thing about textiles is it's so functional in that way is that it's an easy medium to be able to just pick up, take with you and work rather than painting where you're dealing with maybe chemicals or having to wait for things to dry. It's very immediate. Right. And I think I mentioned in my CCAC uh, presentation this morning about how that process of embroidery for me and embellishment became this really grounding zen-like kind of mode that I think I was craving at the time and really have been interested in this idea most recently in embellishment and more of the sort of conceptual nature of embellishment of why we feel this sort of pulse, this human nature to embellish things, to decorate them, to build up surfaces and sort of what that does for you as artists, like, you know, why are we doing this very thing? And I'm really interested in sort of more the psychology behind that and how sewing circles, for example, the history of, of quilting bees or sewing circles are this very sort of therapeutic outlet for a lot of people. And I can definitely resonate on that. I I feel like that is ultimately why I I choose this medium for my work. My head is firing in all directions right now because so much of what you're saying is really resonating with me. I did the same. uh, I'd switched to working with uh, fabric and embroidery when I had kids because Mm -hmm. I was so separated from my studio. Yeah. And also I wanted to talk to you about the subversive stitch. So you mentioned uh, Rosika Parker's subversive stitch in your um, in your presentation at CCAC, which I love this book. Um, and uh, yeah, what was I going to say about it? Oh, I interviewed Betsy Greer for my podcast, who's actually in the introduction yeah, to Rosika Parker's say. book. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I was all starstruck about it. Aww, like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, we might as well talk a little bit about your presentation. So usually when I interview people, I talk about their childhood a lot, but like I'm really interested in a lot of the stuff that you talked about in your presentation. You said that you were interested in psychology. And so you presented kind of based on Donald Winnicott's 
theories, which I was familiar with from um, studying and getting my master's in teaching. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think my art ed background might come out there, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I don't know, I've just skipped around, but so you started off talking about Donald Winnicott, and I want to go back to that, but you mentioned that your your whole talk was about mirroring mm-hmm. and that Rosika Parker the child sees in its mo- in its mother's face him or herself and the embroiderer sees reflection of herself in the work and its reception by others um, and how that is also this action of mirroring and actually what's so great that you pointed out this quote from Rosika Parker's book is that that's what inspired the whole presentation So I recently started teaching fiber art at University of Kentucky on a part-time basis, just for fun. It's in addition to my tenure track full-time on the job. Yeah, because I'm crazy, (laughs) right? But I love it. I love it so much. And my students are doing readings, and that was one of, we had an excerpt from the book. Because you're teaching community college. Yeah, I normally teach at a community college, so this is like a break from that, and this is a much higher level conceptual. Yes. Because that's like a two-year college, right? Yeah, it's a two-year college. So it's really nice to have the balance of both. Um, but I was assigning readings for this class, and I think, you know, this was something I had read Rosika Parker's book in graduate school very long ago, you know, long ago, almost 10 years ago, and it's so nice to be able to see this all through the lens of my students again. Read that quote and was just so excited, like, oh, this is so interesting. I'm so sort of want to get into this. So I started to look into mirroring and particularly how it relates to art making and saw that and didn't realize that Parker was also a psychotherapist. I didn't realize that either until you said it, and I was like, oh, new information. Yeah, so I she was a psychotherapist, that. and I don't know what kind of credentials she had, but but she was also interested in Winnicott's uh, theories of the stages of development and how that relates to mirroring. And then, you know, just to be able to have that sort of moment of, like, a light bulb came off of, wow, you know, what we are doing for our children, we're mirroring for our children, our children are going through these different stages of development. And in a way, we are doing the same thing as as particularly, in this case, our session was about mother artists or parent artists uh, and academics, that in the same way, we are sort of doing this for our students. You know, we're mirroring for our students. And then we're mirroring through the making and reception of our artwork. And I just loved all these different parallels that were happening in the research and decided to sort of put that together into a more sort of organized format of looking at the child stages of development in regards to Donald Winnicott, who was another psychoanalyst who wrote the book Playing in Reality from 1971. And that book, you know, hashes out a few of these different stages of development, mirroring the transitional object, um, social awareness, and how these things relate to a child's sort of creative impulse. And I'm like, how, how, what a great sort of metaphor to think about that too for the, for the artist yeah. and the parent, that they're also going through a very similar type of developmental stage in their own right. You know, they're yeah. also going through these sort of formative years as a child is going through at the same time. When we have children, we're emerging in our careers, we're emerging as artists. And why don't we sort of recognize that and discuss that more? So that's sort of what inspired it. But going back to that quote, you know, that was really empowering to think about how, you know, my process of making art is, is does that just in the same way that I do that for my daughter. Um, I just think it's really interesting to, to reflect upon and to realize that there's a lot of recognition that happens through our, not only our art making process, the labor involved in our art making process, but also then that reception of how it goes out into the world and who sees it. So there's satisfaction in both avenues. And I've always really been attracted to textiles because of the process. Mm-hmm. I like being slowed down through my process. I like the repetitive nature of it. And I'm, I find you know, so much satisfaction in that that sometimes I even forget about the final product, right? <laughs> Um, but then, of course, there is this really great satisfaction that comes out of showing your work and getting feedback on your work. So I think that's really nice to think about it from that perspective. You mentioned in the panel um, one thing that stood out is you said that you didn't feel totally fulfilled in what you were doing after you had your daughter until you were back in the classroom. Yeah. yeah. So I Why ta- do you think that is? So I talked about that. So at the time that my daughter was born, I was adjuncting part-time, and was wanting a full-time academic job, but just was having a hard time finding it at first. And 
I think I was feeling bad about that, but I also was having a lot of uh, my friends were having children at the same time, and they all seemed very fulfilled in that mother role, that Mm. idea of mirroring. They felt good about sort of what their capacity was for their children. And I just really struggled with that. And I don't think a lot of enough people talk about that. They don't talk about that loss of autonomy that happens in those early years of infancy. And just realized the minute I got back into class, I felt so excited. And of yeah. course, it was like as simple as I felt good to just get out of my house, right? Because right. I had a baby at home. But it was more of a sort of awareness of like, I really do get a lot of satisfaction out of teaching my students and then seeing that reception, seeing that I showed them this skill and then I applied that skill to their art. And in in my presentation today, I was talking about how that is mirroring and that I'm seeing that come out through their work. Right. So with mirroring of a child, we see it come back through their gestures. Like we mirror a gesture, they mirror it back. Mm -hmm. But it's a little different for students because it's like you're mirroring to them and they mirror it back in their work. And I think there's something really special about that that I think fulfilled me and made me feel like I was kind of becoming back to my former self after those early years. It's mirroring on a more intellectual level. Yeah. Than what you're doing, you know, with your children, it's like physical. I I often feel like an animal. Yeah. When I'm with my kids, you know, I'm, it's re- so true. <laughs> I'm very much like mother cow or something. Yeah. Um, but then with your students, that physical aspect is gone. Absolutely. And the mirroring is all intellectual. So I totally get where you're coming from with that. Yeah. And I think that's also why I was so drawn back to the studio after having my daughter as well, because I just was sort of needing that. Uh, intellectual rigor that leans me to making my work. Yeah, um, so speaking about your students, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you talked about speaking out about your college's policy on no kids coming to class. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Like what happened? Did you have students who were trying to be bring children or, you know, and you had to, what, what did you say their policy was? You have to give them a bad well, basically, if they're bringing, the, so there's a policy at our school, it's a community college, so I think that they ran into an issue probably where maybe someone got hurt or something, I don't know the details, but I know that they have a very strict policy in that students can't bring their children to school, and if they do, they're breaking policy, which is something that ultimately can be put on their permanent record, mm. because breaking policy, breaking the rules, that's the student handbook, basically, right? right? Um, Now, I don't think it goes to that very often. I don't think that it's on any student's permanent records per se. But it could. But it could because it is an actual policy. And in the beginning of working there, I let kids in the classroom because I didn't know we had a strict policy on it. I was a new faculty member, so I used that naive (laughs) perspective for the good, right? Um, And it was never an issue because it only happens, gosh, maybe once a semester. It's not like this is a common issue. Right. And it only happens under... Because people don't want to bring their kids to class. No one wants to bring their (laughs) children to class. No way. Right. Um, So, but, but I talked about this other professor who her photograph of her went viral of her wearing one of her... Uh, students, children on her back while she was giving a lecture. Yeah, she was in uh, Lawrenceville, not far from me in Athens. Yeah, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. I don't have my notes, but she, I just thought it was such a nice, kind gesture. And I had been sort of following our school's policy, not thinking too much about it. And it only, ha- I think it has Dr. only happened. Dr. Cease, is that how you pronounce like her name? Cisse or Cisse? something? Yeah. Um, I think it had only happened maybe one time since I knew about our policy where I had to send a student home who tried to come to class with a baby and felt really, it felt really wrong, felt, made me feel really uncomfortable and it sort of inspired me to start a discussion, you know, in venues like faculty council where we can sort of maybe rethink this policy or at least rethink how severe it sort of seems to be in regards to like it could end up on a student's record. But I do understand that also the sort of conversation around the fact that really what we need to do is instead make changes to our policy in regards to like, it should be okay for like, a lot of the um, academics in the session today talked about how they had to bring their own kids to right uh, to class sometimes. And I think that that's an issue because why aren't we getting enough sick days, right? Yeah. Why aren't we getting that more structural um, institutional support versus having to put ourselves in these situations. So I do think that it's the 
bigger picture is that there's a lot of lack of support for parents. We have a very supportive department um, at UNG where I am, and uh, our department head, who is a woman, um, encourages us to bring our kids if we need to. And there are always times, I'm always really annoyed because the school system in Athens, they have one day a month, they have a teacher work day, and it's always on a Monday or a Friday. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm, so like for one day, you can't get childcare for one day a month. And both me and my husband work full time, and it's honestly easier for me to bring the kids to my work than it, would it is be the for same him. For me too. You yeah. know, because I teach. It depends. If I'm teaching figure drawing, it's not a good semester. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they can't sit in with the yeah. nude models. <laughs> but if I'm teaching a painting and drawing semester where they can come in and work and like sit on the computer, I just bring them with me. My kids are a little bit older too. They're eight and eleven. Yeah, I think it depends. I think the age does make a difference. And I have brought my daughter to my office hours or stuff like that before. It's not that I don't, and I actually did have a colleague who had told me she had brought her young son and another colleague had like reported her, which seems just like a really gross climate. Yeah. Um, but I will say that within my division, you know, my my dean or assistant dean who would be sort of seen as a chair in other colleges um, is also a mother. And I am actually, I think it's really interesting when you're looking at community colleges versus four-year colleges, there are a lot more mothers, I believe, working in community colleges mm-hmm. than in four-year institutions. And I think that that is a result of the fact that we don't have research requirements. Right. And it's a little bit more open in that regard. And so more mothers are sort of end up in those positions. So I'm really grateful that I'm actually surrounded by a lot of mothers as colleagues so I feel the support in that way so it's not like it's necessarily um, entirely unsupportive it's just something that I think we need to have conversations about I think also so I used to I taught briefly at Athens Tech which is a two-year technical school Mm -hmm. in Athens and we they also I believe had a similar policy about not bringing kids to class but I think it's because so many of our students were parents. And that's exactly what it is in my case, because we are at a community college. Right, yeah. and that it became an issue because there would be multiple children. Yeah. Or like, so, you know, so that's why they had to have it in the first place, because like where I teach, it's mostly traditional students that are undergrads that you know have not had time to grow families yet. Exactly, and that we are mostly non-traditional students as well. Yeah. So I think that's where the policy came from. And I understand why there's even maybe a policy. I know that there's underlying issues and problems and reasons why those policies come into place, but I just wanted to sort of point out in the presentation today that I think we're not having enough of these conversations about how these larger institutions, and not just academia, but also the art world, it was hard for me to bring my daughter to my residency. I mean, it was a lot of work because it's not, it wasn't a parent-friendly residency necessarily. <laughs> they ended up being so accommodating and it was amazing, but it took a lot to kind of have to figure it all out and make sure that everything was going to work properly with her being there. So I think that we just need to have more of an openness and conversation about having children and that this is a reality like I'm a mom but I'm also an artist and I want to participate in these things I want to do residencies so um one thing I noticed about this panel so I'm looking around at the number of men in the room right we're at this this uh CCAT conference I, I don't I I would not I'd say it's like 50 50 men and women here would you it seems pretty split yeah, right absolutely yeah. so we're in this artist parent academic session there was less than a handful of men in there yeah I noticed that too um <laughs> and well and they said for and we I think CCAT currently had four different sessions relating to parenting each day actually and I've talked to all of the the chairs and the people who organized those and they said that they they didn't get any male applicants wow for the sessions except for one who was presenting with his wife mm-hmm. and talking about parenting so I thought that was really interesting too that is very interesting and it, to me it says a lot about how far we have to come in this conversation that only women are having this conversation right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting today because Kaylin mentioned at the beginning of she's recording Artist Mother podcast, 
and she mentioned something about, I'm not gonna thank my husband for taking care of our children, um, which made me think of when I, you know, it's all very incestuous here, but when I was on her panel, <laughs> um, I did thank my husband um, for taking care of our kids, not because I thought that he needed to be thanked, um, because they're his kids, and so of course he should be taking care of them, but because I do want to have that conversation about how if men are not stepping up to the plate, you know, this this is making our lot. This is what's making our lives difficult. I totally agree. It's, this is the main factor. We can talk about all this other stuff about how you know we need childcare support, and we do need childcare. But like you know, we also need men who are in the room to be a part of the conversation. Right. Right. I mean, still a majority of men of the roles that are in administration are men, and of course that's becoming less and less, but. It's still extremely important. And I will say, though, you know, I'm very blessed with my, my husband is takes on probably a majority of the sort of traditional domestic roles in our house. He cooks, he cleans, um, he does the laundry. I don't do any of that. And what amazes me is when I tell people that they still get sort of shocked and they sort of still have a response. And I'm, and I sort of, I guess I'm naive in that. I think, I know I live in Kentucky and it is more conservative and traditional, but it still surprises me that people have reactions to that. Right? And you know what? It doesn't surprise well, me. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think that we've moved forward from here, but I realize that we have not. And I think that that's another example of that of the fact that we are still very embedded into this sort of perspective of, of roles and what roles we need to fulfill. And I think that that definitely inspires my work too, thinking about what are the roles within the family, what are the roles within, um, and how outside structures, power systems, whatever, impact those roles as well, um, and sort of how society at large impacts what we decide to do within our private lives. I've been, most recently, I've had an art exhibition in Lexington with a friend of mine, her, another artist, Becky Alley, and we did a, a two-person show together. And the show was called Tending Edges. And it was a lot about, we're both mothers, but we also both create work that is political in that it questions different sort of systems and the work that I incorporated in this, that particular show had a lot to do with navigating what was happening in Kentucky with women's reproductive health. Uh, when I was working on the pieces for the show, there was a lot of stuff happening in the news in regards to different legislation and was really feeling like a loss of control over my own body. Same things happening in Georgia. Yeah, so being a woman in this, uh, territory <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like mm. um and i realized i was embroidering on one of my sculpture pieces i embroidered a target and i didn't mean to it was sort of one of those <laughs> unconscious things right it was this red target and then reflecting back on it and in the center of it i had this very um sort of female form and I realized, you know, looking back at the piece, I think it all connects. This sort of looking at oppressive systems, looking at this legislation that was happening in Kentucky at the time, and how it was impacting how I was feeling on a personal level, and this going back and forth between how the public influences the private, and what happens in our homes. I think it all circles back to this discussion about the lack of men that may have been at this these presentations, is that it still is embedded in sort of the way we fulfill roles. Absolutely, and the men who are legislating um, would not be making these decisions if they had all of those responsibilities for the children that they should have. Absolutely, I totally you know? agree. Yep, I, I think that there's a huge disconnect there, mm -hmm. and it scares me. It, it truly does scare me that that's something that we're having to deal with, particularly in Kentucky. And I'm sure a lot of the southern, more conservative states are also feeling that way. Yeah, I like to ha I hear men. So my husband is a feminist, and he, you know, he does cooking, cleaning. We don't. He doesn't do all of it. We try to split it fifty-fifty. Which is nice. Yes. He. My husband just does. He's just better at it, and he enjoys <laughs> it. Honestly, he really does. And I think that it's never been anything 
that I, I just haven't, I've never been good at cooking. Yeah. I don't enjoy, I don't get any enjoyment out of those processes. When a lot of people at the panel today were talking about how they can find enjoyment out of different domestic duties. I've That's slowly started me. enjoying iron. So I used to hate ironing. <laughs> I actually hate all housework, I have to admit. I try to watch the Marie Kondo thing, and I, she like makes that joy out of housework. I and I'm couldn't like, do it either. I tried <laughs> watching it too. I had the same response. I mean, but like for me, it's you know, if you're raised as a woman that this is what you're gonna do, like I've just fought against it my whole life. Like, and I kind of um, I I understand why my mom wanted to make TV dinners. Like, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Oh wait, you're not the one that recommended the um. The fresh delivery food. No, that was yeah, that was another one of our. our but yeah, yeah, I get that, you know. So my husband, I think, has this joy of cooking that comes from it being a total choice for him. Yeah, absolutely, and it's the same for mine. Yeah, yeah. And, and so and, I'm like, great, I'm gonna let you have that. Yeah, and and that for me, honestly, I would not be able to do everything I do without that support. I would not be able to teach an extra class every semester. I would not be able to come to conferences and have that time to work on papers and all the extra stuff that's And that's happening. what I mean when I'm yeah. thanking my husband. It's not that I'm like, good for you, baby, yes. for stepping up. It's more like, this is what he does. And, yeah. and you know, just like we need to show that we're being vulnerable, we also need to show what's making things work for us. And being transparent about that, I think, is right. really important. Like, I did this residency in New York, and it was three months long. My daughter spent six of the weeks with me, but the other weeks were spent back home with my husband. And so I do recognize that that's un- that's unseen labor. Exactly. In its own way, right? Like, we've talked a lot about unseen labor for, for women. But we have to, I think, recognize both ends of that and have those discussions. And I think that's where the men are missing in this discussion, these panels at CCAC, is that back and forth, that discussion. And perhaps because they are not seeking that support because they're not maybe needing it as much as we are. And I do feel like our sessions have turned into a very supportive, almost therapeutic-like environment. Yes, it's very different. And I don't know if men can relate to that as much or if they're a little bit scared I think like they don't want to intrude on a space that isn't theirs yeah I I agree so and I do and there has been discussions about that and I try to start off my session by saying that I'm trying to be a bit more inclusive in how I define parent right because I feel like parent does go beyond the mother father role I think it's any role that has some sort of dependent right that that one is in in charge of helping and, and assisting and I think maybe there's ways to broaden that discussion in, in a way to invite men and other any, any other types of people who may see themselves as a parent in their own way into the conversation. Well, I think um, we're about ready to wrap it up here unless there's anything else that you wanna say. Um, I'm so thrilled that we had this conversation. I was like really starting to feel tired after so many discussions and so many panels and like no breaks in between and I was coming in here feeling really uh kind of exhausted but like just talking to you is uh really pepped me up so thank you so much oh no thank you I absolutely agree it's really nice to to talk with others who sort of tote that same line between textiles and and also being a mother it sounds like we have a lot of things that we relate to in regards to both our research and personal lives yeah totally thank you so much Colleen thank you Thanks again to Lexington, Kentucky-based artist Colleen Merrill for chatting with us. You can find images of some of her artworks, as well as links to her website and other web resources related to our chat, on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L. Thanks so much for listening to Peachy Keen. The podcast is growing, and I really appreciate all of your support. Some folks have reached out to me as individuals to tell me what the podcast has meant to them, and I love hearing that it's having an impact in your lives and your work. There are so many great women artists around the Southeast, and as you can tell by listening, I love getting to know them and their work and being able to share it with you all as well. I always welcome individual feedback. I love it when you guys write to me, but it would also be really helpful to support the podcast if you could leave a quick review on iTunes. You can put in any name you'd like, so it's pretty anonymous and only takes a minute, but really helps people find the podcast since podcasts are generally ranked by reviews. Peachy Keen also has a Patreon page that is a subscriber system where you can pledge 
a monthly amount to help support the podcast. And you can find our Patreon page on my website at vivianladell.com on the Peachy Keen page as well. And that pledge can be a teeny amount, like a dollar a month, whatever you like. So less than a cup of coffee, way less if you're like me and you buy $6 lattes all the time. Our next episode is coming out really soon. I'm going next week to the Temporary Arts Center in Atlanta to talk with Sonia Young-James. Super excited to meet up with her and check out that space. As you can guess by the name of the space, it's temporary, like a giant pop-up exhibition. So I'll be trying to get that talk out into the world ASAP in hopes that it will encourage all of you to go out and check out the show before it comes down at the end of December. So look for that soon. In the meantime, I hope you all are enjoying the rest of this fall. Maybe we've got some sunshine coming our way and that your days are peachy keen.